Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of the Future of Finance. My guest today is Alessio Quaglini, CEO of Hex Trust, the Hong Kong-based provider of institutional-grade digital asset custody services. Alessio, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Alessio, could I begin by asking what it was that convinced you, and I'm asking this because you set up Hex Trust relatively early in the day, what was it that convinced you there would be an institutional appetite for cryptocurrency investing as opposed to a retail appetite? Yeah, sure. Um, I think in general, it always starts with retail demand, right? In in this case, four years ago, the, 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 the situation was very clear. There was a very strong retail demand and the, the services that were offered by the cryptocurrency exchanges to retail users were actually very similar to the ones offered by commercial banks to retail clients. Just a little bit more aggressive in terms of how products were developed and pushed to clients. So with this, with this in mind, it was clear that at a certain point in time, when the demand from retail clients would become sufficiently big, institutions would be interested in getting into this market and in sharing the pie. Right. So this was the uh, this was really the first factor that told me that at a certain point in time institutions will get into the space. And secondly, uh, the asset class uh, was uh, a very different asset class from what we were observing in the market until until that time. And I think the specific microeconomic situation with a lot of uh, supply monetary supply uh, was really pushing. Uh, investors to look for alternatives to assets that would be inflationary, right? So I thought that there would be actually an intrinsic real demand from institutional investors for alternatives to uh, assets already available in the the market. Thirdly, uh, I think the underlying technology, the blockchain technology really has the potential. And if we decouple it from the actual cryptocurrencies in terms of blockchain technology, it really has the potential to transform the way the financial markets transform the way the financial markets work, right? And we believed that uh, a certain part of the financial markets infrastructure at a certain point in time would be actually replaced by blockchain technology. And when that would happen, then institutions would require a certain type of enterprise-grade platforms to enter the market and in turn offer digital asset service to their clients. Now you obviously acquired a, a number of institutional clients. Can I ask you to give us a flavor of what we mean by institutional? Do we mean banks? Do we mean private banks? Do we mean wealth managers? Uh, do we mean uh, firms active in the FX markets, non-bank liquidity providers, hedge funds, for example, or traditional asset managers? So what? What, what does institutional mean now and, and how do you expect it to change over time? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it's all of the above, all of the uh, categories that you mentioned, right? Um, we internally in Hex Trust, uh, we categorize clients, institutions into three categories uh, because they require a different approach uh, in terms of a commercial and relationship management approach. So the first category are traditional institutions. And here we've seen the largest custodian banks such as State Street or Standard Chartered Bank entering the market. 
a number of private banks, for example, Unisfair, uh, or well, a number of private banks all around globally. Largest asset managers such as Fidelity, as well as uh, the, the largest corporations. Then secondly, you have the digital, digital asset native companies. These are companies that I would say that didn't exist before uh, crypto assets actually existed. These are companies that were set up as spin-offs of traditional companies, or they were set up just for this, uh, for this uh, type of business. And we're talking about brokers, liquidity providers, exchanges, new banks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, lastly, we have the last categories, which is actually uh, corporations. And within corporations, we include a little bit of uh, everything that does not fit within the kind of regulated financial institution uh, categories. And it's basically family offices, as well as, as well as corporate clients that are entering the digital asset space to basically diversify their, uh, their investment portfolios. Now you've explained why institutions got interested in in uh, in cryptocurrency, anti-inflationary reasons, for example. Are they becoming more adventurous in the type of cryptocurrencies they're buying? Are they kind of extending beyond Bitcoin into other uh, cryptocurrencies as well? It, it really depends, right? So if we look at the, the the reason why we categorize clients into these three categories is really because it helps us also. Uh, understanding what kind of appetite they have in the, the industry, right? So for traditional institutions, so banks, uh, large traditional asset managers, insurance companies, I would say that the interest is still in the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the top cryptocurrencies, as well as uh, other types of assets, uh, not cryptocurrencies per se, uh, such as stable coins or uh, securitized assets, right? Um, if we go down to digital natives, I mean, you would basically uh, look at any type of appetite, right? For uh, the small cap tokens to services that are based on DeFi uh, patterns, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at uh, corporations, kind of worth individuals, family offices, uh, I would say it's a little bit in the middle, right? Obviously everybody started with, uh, with Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera. And now, now they're venturing into um, smaller cap coins, as well as some kind of uh, protocols that allow you to disintermediate some of the intermediaries in finance and obtain a yield out of it. So you, you've got an institutional client base. It's, its appetites are evolving in, in different ways across that, that client base. Now, when I look at, at Crunchbase, I see that Hex Trust has, has raised $6 million from 11 investors, it includes a, a Hong Kong government fund. Where, where are you spending that money that you've raised now? What are your priorities? Um, so we, we invest mainly in three areas. Uh, I like to call ourselves as a uh, tech fin company, where our main asset is this technology platform, this kind of layer that connects the uh, financial services to the different blockchain protocols. So our main investment is really into our product, our platform, to make sure that it's the most competitive or one of the most competitive products available in the market. So this is really the main area and it's usually uh, more than half of our current spending, really in the development and in the development of the product and everything that's around it. 
Secondly, uh, we're going through a geographical expansion. We started with our headquarters here in Hong Kong, but we opened offices in Singapore and in Vietnam. And we're looking towards the end of the year to expand to the Middle East and Europe. Uh, thirdly, since the beginning, we took a fully licensed compliance, compliant approach, uh, which requires uh, a certain amount of uh, licensing expenses and regulatory capital to be uh, put aside to comply with the, with the lo local regulatory requirements. Um, for example, um, it was in the news a couple of weeks ago that we just obtained a uh, CMS custody license from the MAS in Singapore. And the fundraising is also for that purpose to allow us to have enough regulatory capital to comply uh, with the regulatory requirements. Well, we'll come back to that international expansion in a minute. But I think it's a very interesting uh, development. Just to stick to the to the core product, which you you've mentioned, is clearly is clearly custody of of digital assets. Uh, now, the techniques for safe custody of of uh, of cryptocurrencies and uh, and eventually of tokens as well have have been evolving. You know, we started with you know cold and hot storage, multi-sig. Uh, we're now talking about multi-party computation. Do you have to support all of these uh, techniques, and, and are they driven by the customers rather than than by what you have confidence in as a, as a safekeeping technique? So, how many do you have to support, and who's driving the selection of the techniques? All right. So, first, let me let me highlight the fact that there's a lot of attention. Uh, towards the, the specific signing algorithm uh, that uh, custody uh, providers like us um, use. The reality is that uh, whether we use an HSN solution and a multi-sig solution or an MPC uh, kind of sign, signing algorithm, uh, this is just a very small part of the whole kind of custody platform wallet management, transaction management, workflow management, right? Um, it's an important part, but it's just one of the layers that we have to put together to have a competitive platform in the market. In our case, our platform has been designed since the beginning to be configured in a way to support different signing algorithms, right? So for example, for certain blockchain protocols, we support multi-sig, uh, we support HSM, uh, and since the beginning, we support uh, IBM Linux One HSN device, and we support uh, threshold signature, signatures and SSS, Shamir Secret Sharing. In our current uh, implementation that we, that we bring to market, especially for institutional clients, our solution is a hybrid of the HSN solution and SSS, right? which provides us the security of IBM Linux One HSN device, which is the only uh, FIPS 142 level four certified in the market, as well as having a kind of forum-based authorization mechanism. And just as an aside to that, do you advise clients, how important, what importance do clients attach to what you might call more conventional uh, custody techniques like nothing to do with the technology at all, just about how you organize the, the workflows and the processes and the security, like a division of responsibilities. How important are they to keeping these assets safe, what you might call old fashioned, almost custody governance techniques? I think, I mean, <clears throat> since the beginning, we, uh, we approached digital assets with a 
kind of uh, with a traditional mentality, right? We thought since the beginning that traditional financial institutions would get into the space, right? And it wouldn't take long until there would be every regulated institution in the digital asset space would be required to comply with the same kind of requirements that traditional financial institutions have to comply with, right? So maker checker, segregation of duties and responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. So we designed the whole platform on one side in a flexible way so that it can be tailor-made to the requirements of the specific client. But on the other side, in a kind of enterprise play way that allows clients to segregate duties and responsibilities, that allows to have a certain level of sophistication in the transactional workflow management and in the wallet management allowing clients to define omnibus structure, uh, segregated account structures, accounts of accounts. So all of the same things that you would be, uh, that you would look at in a sophisticated traditional custody platform, you would see the same things in our platform. Right. Can we talk a little bit about the variations that are emerging in the asset class? I, perhaps I could start with these non-fungible tokens. I know you're seeing interest in that area. How important are, uh, NFTs now and how important do you expect them to become over time? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think there's a huge interest in the market, right? And the demand is coming from several areas, right? We saw this demand, probably we were one of the first custodians in the market to see this demand happening. And we are probably one of the first custodians that launched uh, NFTs on the custody platform. Right. Now, where NFTs can represent a lot of things, right? Uh, we are seeing most of the interest coming, obviously, from art, from collectibles, and lately from uh, kind of blockchain in-game uh, assets, right? We've seen record uh, trading volumes of OpenSea uh, in August, uh, reaching three plus billion dollars. We've seen record revenues in, I don't know if you're familiar with Axie Infinity, uh, the most popular um, game, online blockchain game. Um, and we've seen record revenues in July and August, right? So I think there's interest from several areas. NFTs as really a digital representation of ownership that gives developers the possibility to apply this technology to several things. But the most important thing is that you're basically able to represent digital ownership in a digital asset. So, and this digital asset becoming yours can be manipulated by the owner, can be used in different applications. So a piece of art that you buy on, in an art, in a NFT art gallery can be used as an asset in a game and can be modified and then combined with another NFT to create maybe a new piece of art to be resold to another buyer. Right, so it gives you a lot of flexibility to create a new world of, uh, of digital ownership. Now, <clears throat> I think um, this put together with this new trend of moving to the metaverse that this new generation is experiencing, where this, dig the, this digital world becomes as important as the real world. And the assets that exist in the digital world, we're seeing a lot of the top brands kind of selling assets in this digital metaverse world. This, this metaverse assets are becoming as important as the real assets. 
So if you put all of this into a context, then you will basically realize that this NFT market is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. And it will be extended to other areas, right? So we will see probably intellectual property, we'll see copyrights, we'll see self-sovereign identity, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. a lot of different avenues that eventually will be, will be tackled by uh, companies covering uh, all these kind of in innovative uh, sectors. So NFTs are going to be huge. Uh, what about security tokens? Are they going to be huge? <laughs> how, how important are they to you now? And, and, and will they be huge in future? Um, so in our case, security tokens are still a negligible part of our, of our assets. Uh, this might change in the future. In reality, uh, we've seen until now a, uh, a large success in cryptocurrencies. We're seeing right now, obviously, this new wave of success in NFTs. We'll probably experience a new wave of, of success in security tokens, but it will take uh, it will take a little bit of more time. Right. So tokenized assets have, have seen the least success while they were anticipated the most, right? Um, security tokens, real estate, commodities. But the, the reason is not really the technology. The reason is that there is no regulatory framework in place that allows to create uh, and create advantages in using the blockchain technology for this security token purpose, right? So we're using a new technology with an old regulatory framework. We take the least common denominator as a solution and the old framework wins over the new technology, right? So until we're able to have a new regulatory framework that allows to, uh, to actually uh, leverage the benefits of blockchain technology in the security token space, we will not see this uh, the, the significant increase in the adoption of security tokens. So regulation law is a, is a constraint on the rapid growth of the security token markets. But I, I know you're involved in, actively involved in discussions about tokenized bond issues. Um, what explains that interest? Do you expect uh, tokenized bonds to, to take off sooner and grow faster than say tokenized equities? Well, I think, um... <clears throat> I don't see one asset class being faster than being faster than the other one, right? Uh, I think it's more kind of how easy it is to go to market, right, with one asset class. Um, we've seen a lot of experiments. I, I think until uh, two, three years ago, there were only kind of pilots in the market of uh, banks, investment banks trying to issue bonds on uh, private blockchains. In the last few months, we've seen kind of a transition from um, pilot testing, et cetera, to actual real world uh, issuances. Uh, we're still seeing um, uh, these kind of experiments done in a more or less sandbox environment, or if not in a sandbox, with a lot of controls to make sure that, that nothing can go wrong, right? Uh, but in order to move from this kind of controlled environment to a completely uh, free environment, right? Before we'll see this kind of security tokens actually being issued freely on a public blockchain and traded in the primary issue on primary and traded in the secondary, I think it will still take some time. 
So if we get a more favorable legal and, and regulatory environment, at that point we can expect uh, the security token markets to, to really start to grow. I think that's what you're saying. But yeah, what, I think, yeah, go on. I mean, the, the, te the technology is there, right? And it's been there for a uh, number of years already, right? Um, what, what is missing is a, first of all, a regulatory framework, which makes it worth doing it, right? Rather than doing a normal insurance, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and the second one, obviously, it's more of a legal issue, right? And there are a lot of moving parts. So I think you have technology companies trying to do it, but you need really experts in the legal environment and regulation to actually drive these initiatives. And that's where I see probably a path to success for security tokens. And when you talk of law and regulation, you're you're thinking specifically of Hong Kong, or are you thinking of Singapore, which you mentioned as well? Or are you talking about all major securities trading jurisdictions need need to change? I mean, can this start in one market and grow from there, or does it need to be a global, globally favourable environment, if you like, from a legal and regulatory point of view? I think you, you're really touching upon the, the one of the, the critical aspects, right? So if we talk about about Hong Kong, if we talk about Singapore or any other capital markets, then the actually the actual uh, upside of this market is going to be very limited. So the, the real advantage that this new technology brings to the market is to have a global, programmable, twenty-four by seven um, instantaneous settlement layer, right? Which is the public blockchain, right? If you take this new technology, the public blockchain and then you put it into a local framework where assets can only be transferred within a jurisdiction with a lot of limitations, et cetera, then you're losing out on uh, the, the, the most interesting part of what blockchain can bring to the market, right? So you can do it, but the question is, is it worth doing it? Hmm. Yeah. Now, from a technical perspective, I mean purely in terms of providing a custody service to support security tokens. Uh, in a sense, it's easier to look after security tokens because if one gets lost or stolen, you can cancel it and, and replace it, which is not an option uh, with, a, with a cryptocurrency. But to support that asset class, do you have to do things very differently? Or am I right to think that actually security tokens would be a relatively straightforward proposition for you to support, for Hextrust to support? So, okay, so we already support a number of security token standards and we already licensed in, in Singapore uh, to provide custody services for uh, security tokens, mm -hmm. right? So we, are, we basically have everything in place to do that. Now, if we want to compare the, um, the, the complexity of security tokens versus cryptocurrencies, I would say that there are not many differences. However, there are some nuances of, that, that, that need to be addressed, right? And I'll give you a, I'll give an example. A security token, for example, might not be freely transferable to everybody. It might only be transferable to somebody that has passed, for example, a KYC, right? Or it might only be transferable to somebody that is regarded as a professional investor, right? So in that case, you have to be able to first 
uh, bring to the to the to the equation some kind of institutions that is able to profile who has access to the transfer mechanism of this asset, and at the same time you have to be able to program the blockchain so that only certain participants in the blockchain can be whitelisted and can receive a transfer of the token. Right. So there are certain standards on different public blockchain protocols that allow that allow you to do that. Um, so the, the responsibility of the custodian is to actually integrate these standards that are designed around uh, security tokens uh, in, onto the same custody platform. The second aspect is the asset servicing part, which could be quite different from uh, the way it's done in the, in the more in the traditional space. And I think it's, it's going to be another challenge that um, students will have to actually uh, address. Well, since you brought up the, the asset servicing uh, question, I was going to ask you about that since you, you talk about that in some detail, which not every digital asset custodian does. Obviously, servicing digital assets is different. You have these forks and these airdrops in addition to conventional things like you know dividends and, and interest and, and voting. Um, how, how important is the asset servicing side of the business now? My assumption is not very. And how important would you expect it to become over time, particularly as security token markets take off? All right. So um, you, you brought up a couple of uh, couple of things, right? So, for example, in the let's call it the cryptocurrency space, yes, you do have forks and you do have airdrops, which you, you might have in different kind of context in the security token space. But let's talk about the, the cryptocurrency space. So in that case, the asset servicing as a custodian, you have to be able to handle uh, these situations. You have to have very, um, very clear policies and procedures, and you have to be able to explain those policies and procedures to your clients and to your and to your regulator, right? Uh, so th that really falls onto the the responsibility of the, the custodian. In the security token space, now we're we're moving kind of the the whole part of the financial markets infrastructure into a more digital decentralized blockchain based one. So I think we also need to kind of um, be more advanced in terms of how we do all the other ancillary services. So we will not expect to send letters to the uh, the whole the, the bond holder. Uh, the bondholders address to, uh, to indicate their proxy voting, right? So all of these things will have to be done digitally, right? Which means that we'll have to be able to implement governance platforms that will allow the different hierarchical layers or intermediaries that are involved in the security token process, right? To, uh, in to actually interact with these new digital platforms and exercise the, the different rights, the different types of security tokens that are available in the market. So it will it will have it, it will have an impact. So we will really have to take it step by step, probably start with uh, simpler assets, right? And then progress into the, the more complicated structures. Can I ask you how the, the the technology affects the issuance process? You know, if we look at a conventional securities issue, the securities get issued into a central securities depository. A, a CSD, that CSD is responsible for maintaining the integrity of the issue, avoiding the double counting, I suppose. 
but it also maintains a register of, of, of who owns what. Now, technologically speaking, with a, with a decentralized blockchain-based network, you don't, none of those functions are actually relevant. So how do you, how do you expect, um, maybe I'm asking you how, how you would expect CSDs to evolve, but I'm really trying to ask you how the issuance process differs from the way that securities are issued today. I think, so many, I would say many people really ignore um, the role of the blockchain in the new financial markets infrastructure, right? So many people say, why do we need a custodian if now we have a decentralized market and everybody can be a self-custodian, et cetera, et cetera, um, and have their own private keys. The reality is that the blockchain does not, uh, the blockchain per se does not replace uh, a lot of intermediaries, right? In the, in the financial markets infrastructure. The main intermediary that it replaces is the actual CSD. So the CSD as the kind of the final source of truth or a final ledger of ownership of the, um, of the securities or, or the asset uh, doesn't exist anymore, right? And it's replaced by a decentralized ledger, which is the blockchain itself. So the custodians, instead of having to build a connection with all the different CSDs or ICSDs that exist in different markets, will have to build a connection directly to the different blockchains. That is the that is the whole difference, right? So when a when it, when a token an asset is issued, it is issued directly and deployed to the blockchain. Right? There is no other intermediary in the middle that has to capture this kind of issuance. Now, talking of issuance, you've got a token issuance partnership with uh, with DLA Piper. How does that partnership work? What are the, the two of you doing? How do you divide the labor? or expect to divide the labor between you, Next Trust, and DLA Piper. So first of all, this this really goes back to what we were talking about before, right? So I don't think the uh, the security token issuance, etc., market is really about technology. The technology is there. It is more about understanding the legal complications and the regulatory framework. That's why we decided to partner up with DLA Piper to actually address enter this market, right? Because we think that it's the right uh, that the technology platform together with, a, with one of the largest or the largest law firms in the world is actually the perfect synergy to actually enter this market. Now, in terms of what we do, we've been appointed as a as the official custodian of Toco, and Toco Toco is this digital asset, digital asset creation uh, engine, right? Which has been uh, created by DLA Piper, and it works on a number of blockchain protocols originally on the Hedera Ashcraft and then on Ethereum, I think Algorand right now. So we, in, 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 this, um, in this kind of partnership, uh, DLA Piper provides the whole legal advisory to companies that want to go to market and issue, uh, and issue assets on, on different blockchain protocols. Uh, Toco is the technology that allows to create uh, create the tokens and distribute it to the market. And Hex Trust is the regulated custodian that can, hold, that can hold the assets on behalf of the investors. Now, it's not just a disconnected part. Hex Trust also has to be part of the governance mechanism that allows to define certain parameters that are necessary 
to enable these security tokens. We talked before, we talked about the fact that if you want to enable security tokens, you have to be able to restrict, for example, the transfer of the assets to only eligible counterparties. So it, it is the role of the custodian to participate in this governance mechanisms, mechanism that enables certain counterparties in that blockchain to actually be able to transfer and receive assets. Now, one of the responsibilities of custodians in the traditional world and in this world as well is, of course, customer due diligence. Now, you're working, I understand, with Chainalysis uh, on that customer due diligence side that's running the KYC, AML, CFT, sanction screening checks. How does the partnership work with them? What do they do? What do you do? All right. So one of the, one of the, uh, one of the complications of most uh, blockchain protocols is that they are pseudonymous, which means that you can identify who's sending you assets, but there is no name, there's no identity attached to, to it. Right? So certain companies such as Chainalysis, Liptic, Crystal, et cetera, they have developed uh, algorithms that are able to study what's going on on the public ledger of the different blockchains, right? And then identify patterns and define risk scoring attached to certain addresses, the sent transactions and, and transactions themselves, right? So the way we leverage uh, chain analysis and other platforms is actually to integrate them in, onto our platform. So that every time we receive a transaction from a third party, we can, we can scan the transaction uh, through their algorithm, which returns us a kind of an, an, an idea of what the risk probability attached to that transaction is, right? Based on that risk scoring that we receive, then our compliance officer can make a decision on whether the transaction can be cleared or whether the transaction should be return to the sender, whether the transaction should be reported to the relevant authority, right? And by the way, our platform is, uh, we, we have integrated analysis and Crystal and our platform aims to become quite flexible in terms of integrating other sources of AML and CTF, CTF transaction monitoring risk coins so that our clients will be able to choose which kind of uh, information they want to access. Yeah. You have a third partnership with, with IBM on the cybersecurity side. How does that relationship work? Um, it's not really on the cybersecurity side. So I would say that uh, IBM is, first of all, as I was mentioning before, we designed the whole platform since the beginning uh, on their um, IBM Linux One platform, which is one of the strongest and uh -huh. Uh, platforms available in the market for cryptographic transactions, right? So we leverage their platform uh, to build on top of it our uh, our software uh, custody uh, custody platform. So that, that's a partnership from that perspective on the hardware side, as well as a partnership on the commercial side, where uh, the two entities, Hextras and IBM, can combine their efforts to actually deliver. The final solution to the uh, to the banking client. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked some length about about what you were doing with with Chainalysis. Um, 
just one specific question is the, is the travel rule you know its responsibility to pass on information to the next institution in the chain is that is that a problem for this business and in general and for your business in particular is the travel rule an issue travel rule i mean i wouldn't define it as an issue it is mm-hmm. so certainly it is a complication right and travel rule will change the rules of the game right if and when it is fully implemented, right? I think um, in the end, there will be two markets, right? One is the regulated one that has to follow not only the travel rule, but also all the other regulations, right? And then there will be the unregulated market. This will probably last for a while. In the end, there will have to be only one market, right? And it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. Right, where we will combine um, the, the strictest regulations for uh, sensitive uh, transactions, right? And we will have uh, easier to follow rules for transactions that are not, uh, that are not so sensitive. Yeah. But certainly it is, I think, uh, it will have a big impact. I think everybody, all the virtual asset service providers, uh, all the regulated institutions around the world, I'm trying to understand exactly to what extent it will be applied and trying to understand how we can implement solutions that will satisfy the, the local regulatory requirements as well as the uh, international guidances. Uh, we've talked about issuance, we've talked about asset servicing, we've now, we've now talked about compliance. One thing we haven't talked about is a fairly basic service of, of, of settlement, which you, which you also provide. Now, if I understand it correctly, uh, settlement is still not possible uh, on the chain, as it were. You, you, you have to deal with the, with the surrounding banking system to settle the cash leg of, of these transactions. So the only way to do it on chain is for people to pre-fund their accounts, either with payment tokens or with, um, with, with I guess, with stable coins as well. Um, so what is the impact of this pre-funding need on the clients that you are, are working with? And, and how do you expect the cash leg of settlement to change, maybe as, for example, central bank digital currencies become available? All right. So, um, I mean, so settlement is possible uh, for blockchain players, right? And there are different types, different ways of doing it, right? So there's obviously certain trades are pre-funded, right? And other trades, uh, actually happen on the credit line and they're actually settled after execution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of the same mechanisms that we have in the, the traditional world apply also uh, also to, to the blockchain world with the difference, probably the main difference being that there is no central kind of party you can trust, right? And the second thing is that kind of parties in the market do not really have a credit assessment, so you don't really know or can trust who you're dealing with, right? So there have to be in place different mechanisms for uh, kind of parties in the, for market players to actually mitigate this kind of settlement settlement risk. Um, in our case, uh, we, can, we can settle transactions pre-funded or on a credit line basis on our custody accounts, as well as uh, um, settle trans- transaction T plus, and we, we can settle T plus zero uh, for most cases, and or we can settle instantaneously for uh, prime brokerage accounts. Mm-hmm. 
And when you say different mechanisms for the advance of credit, do you mean credit has to be collateralized? And if it is collateralized, what's it collateralized with, with cryptocurrency? Um, so credit can be collateralized. They're, diff they're basically, okay, they're, they're two different markets, two different ways of doing it. So one is kind of the, the more traditional one where, okay, you kind of the, the kind of party that has to give you credit, they have to cost collateral, right? And then um, the, the typical mechanism of kind of a loan to value and haircut is applied to extend the credit to the kind of party. Or it can be done uh, in a di completely different way in the DeFi world, where you can interact directly with a smart contract that calculates automatically how much collateral is needed for a certain credit. And just to be clear, the, the collateral is cryptocurrency, but uh, well, go on, yeah. Yeah, so collateral, in the, if we're talking about kind of the, uh, the more uh, C-Fi, TreadFi, so basically oh. when you're interacting with another, uh, with another institution in the market, right? So in that case, um, collateral and credit can be extended in cryptocurrencies, in stable coins, as well as fiat, right? So, um, it is possible to do transactions where you get a collateral in, uh, in Bitcoin and you extend a uh, loan, a 50% loan to value loan in, uh, in US dollar to your client. Right? This is, these are transactions that happen in the, in the billions of dollars every day in the cryptocurrency market, right? involving a fiat leg, a cash leg. And in the DeFi world, it's a little bit different because it happens completely on chain and there is no cash lag per se on chain, but it can be done with a stable coin. Mm -hmm. uh, you brought up, you brought up DeFi. Um, and as you point out, people are lending, they're staking the cryptocurrency which they hold. From an institutional perspective, are institutions getting involved in that business or is it still a retail business? And if institutions are getting involved, how, how adventurous are they being in the world of DeFi? They are getting involved. It depends on, uh, I would say, how you define institution, right? Um, so broker, dealers, liquidity providers are obviously more agile than uh, big traditional banks. But I would say that everybody's looking at that, right? And uh, DeFi is nothing else than replicating the same models that we have in the traditional market. But instead of having intermediaries in the middle, we're replacing those intermediaries uh, that do not add much value with a piece of code. And that piece of code executes according to certain pre-programmed rules, right? So in the case of borrowing and lending, if you look at the, the way a protocol such as Compound or Aave have been designed, it's really the way, uh, the way it works in the traditional financial markets. And they have been very effective in addressing certain, uh, certain parts of the, uh, of, of, the, of the markets in the blockchain market that were not developed. Mm -hmm. And I see more and more institutions actually looking into that, understanding, understanding more, seeing the advantages. Um, with this, I'm not saying that the DeFi market will replace the, the centralized one. I think we will have uh, two checkpoints Right? And the two of them, they will have to live together and kind of, they want to be competitive. They will have to innovate co continuously and compete with each other. 
This is a slightly unfair question in the context of what you've just said about these two worlds living alongside each other. But what's your general view of, of DeFi? Is it a bubble like the ICO bubble back in 2017? Is it a very useful forum for all sorts of interesting experiments to take place with, with smart contracts and, and disintermediation of people that don't add or institutions that don't add value? Or is it, uh, is it really the future of finance? Over, over however long a time scale it takes, do you think finance will look like something like DeFi rather than TradFi if we look, I don't know, 30 years ahead? What's your view of it in general? Right, so I think obviously there, if, if you look at the, uh, of the asset prices, obviously there is a bubble. And there is a bubble when you see, um, when you see, okay, you have a very innovative protocol such as uh, DAI, or such as Aave and Compound, right? Which actually work very similarly. And then you have you know, hundreds of protocols in the market. They are basically iterations of the same of the same code, right? With a different name, right? So if I look at the price of those iterations of the same protocols. And I see that there's a lot of uh, market cap uh, that is locked up in those uh, in those protocols. Then yes, I would say we're in a bubble. But if we're looking at the top protocols, DeFi protocols that actually innovated the market and disintermediate some parts of the financial markets, then I think we're just uh, scratching the surface, and and this thing will actually grow uh, very fast. What was the second part of the question, Dominic? Uh, there was no second part. I think you've answered my question, which was really just whether this is a bubble or a, or a useful set of experiments or uh, um, the future of, of the future of finance. And I think you, you've answered that question. You've explained that institutions are getting involved with it. So um, I, 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 was, I was conscious it was an unfair question to ask you somewhat, really, because I'm <laughs> asking you to stare into a crystal ball looking 30, 40, 50 years ahead, really. Oh yes, the second part was the, the uh, how it would look going forward, right? So maybe if uh, in a kind of utopic scenario, right? I think um, there will be certain parts of the, the financial infrastructure that will be replaced by you know, things that run on DeFi protocols, right? And I see one day we'll go to the to the to the convenience to the convenience store with our uh, mobile wallet. Right, where we will have our stocks and we will decide to pay for our ice cream, basically selling some part of our stock portfolio. The stock will go automatically to a decentralized exchange, which will swap it into the whatever currency that the shop owner wants to receive, right? And neither the buyer would know what, is, what the shop owner wants to receive and will actually receive nor will the shop owner actually know what I'm paying with, right? There will be a full railway built on a decentralized exchange in the middle that will actually disintermediate the exchange of value between the buyer and the seller. Mm -hmm. So the world of investment and the world of payment will in effect be merged into one, I was about to say amorphous, but it won't be amorphous, but into one set of rails where the distinction is invisible to the merchant and to the consumer but it works perfectly through smart contracts. I mean, if we, if we want to tokenize assets, right, there must be a reason why we want to tokenize them, right? Not just because we want to see a token on the blockchain, 
but probably because we want to monetize them. So we want to be able to spend them, to use them in different ways, right? So I think that the, this is the direction things are going, right? Uh, you, you, you'll just be able to spend any assets regardless of the asset class that you are, uh, that the asset belongs to um, in, in your everyday transactions. Yeah. Can I come back down to Earth, I suppose, and ask about international expansion of Hex Trust? You, you touched on this earlier. You mentioned Singapore. You also have this uh, relationship now with SIA in, in, in Europe to provide digital custody solutions to financial institutions in Europe. Um, what, are your, what, are you, what is your strategy? What are your plans to expand uh, internationally? And, and are, you, are you growing at the, internationally at the pace which you feel comfortable doing? Sure, okay. Uh, so first of all, we have basic, I would say two basic offerings in Hextrust. So one is the financial services that we talked about until now. And the other one is the software. So if you are a bank that wants to become a digital asset custodian and not appointing a sub-custodian like us, but you want to become a direct custodian for certain digital assets, then you can go to software providers and there's a market for that and buy a software that allows you to actually interact with the blockchain and become a custodian yourself, right? So in our case, we can um, deliver that software to financial institutions as a service, so software as a service or as an enterprise solution. So the partnership that we have with uh, SIA, which now merged uh, with Nexi, so SIA Nexi, is a software partnership where we are the software provider and they have the exclusivity to distribute uh, our software to banks in Europe, right? Now, <clears throat> if we look at our expansion, so in terms of our financial services, the areas that we want to cover, we want to be the leader here in Asia, and we want to progressively enter the, the more Middle Eastern market and the European market, right? Positioning ourselves as a uh, specialized custodian of digital assets with a very strong footprint in Asia. Right? On the other side, uh, as a software provider, we can be more, I would say, geographically agnostic as long as we find the right distribution partners that then can service the clients that they distribute the software to. And North America, which approach will you be adopting or will you be looking to avoid the North American market? Well, uh, so in terms of uh, the uh, financial service part, it is not a target market for now uh, in, the, in the short term for us. We want to really, I think there is a huge opportunity here in Asia. This is the digital continent. There are so many different markets uh, uh, within Asia that um, we will look at uh, the North American market in a, in a second phase. Right? For, with respect to software, um, I think we're flexible. Uh, if we find the right uh, distribution partner, uh, we could easily also enter that market. And we are, for example, we're looking at South America um, where we are discussing with a potential distribution partner. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Last questions. Uh, in the digital asset custody is becoming quite a crowded field now. There are a lot of um, 
providers around the world. What do you see as the competitive differentiators of Hex Trust in particular? All right. Um, <clears throat> so let, let's start from the from your previous question. So first of all, uh, I think we're one of the few players in the market that is able to uh, play in the financial services area as a licensed custodian, and at the same time also be a software provider. Right. So this is very important because in the in the journey the journey to digital asset adoptions, banks go through certain steps and they might start from a custody, sub-custody solution to then transition to a SaaS solution and then ultimately to a enterprise solution. So being able to provide the whole range of solutions is quite an important differentiating point for us. Uh, the second one is our, our footprint, right? Um, Asia obviously is the digital asset continent. <clears throat> It's growing at a very fast pace, and being uh, being a, the, the leader here in Asia really gives us a unique value proposition for our clients. Not only in terms of uh, time zone, etc., but also understanding of uh, understanding of the market and the client requirements. Right. Uh, lastly, I think we we took since the beginning a very kind of a compliant, regulated approach, and we designed the platform around the requirements of banks, right? So <clears throat> the market is huge and not everybody has built the platform the same way, right? Somebody has addressed you know, the self-custody market, somebody has addressed the, the requirements of exchanges, somebody has addressed the requirements of liquidity providers, right? We have really specialized in the regulated compliant banking market, which we think will become uh, will, will be the one experiencing uh, uh, the greatest growth in the long term. This is my, my final question. You just said that you built the service around the, the requirements of banks. So what is your vision of the, um, the future of, of Hex Trust? Is it that one day you'll be sold to a bank, a custodian bank perhaps, or is it that you uh, intend to continue to grow the business either organically or by acquisition. What's your vision? Where do you think Hex Trust will be in five, 10 years? And where would you like it to be? How would you like Hex Trust to evolve? I think every option is on the table, right? But more importantly, what really is my objective in this market is to bring to market the, the most competitive platform that can be used by financial service providers to actually interact with the blockchain. I think if you have the most competitive platform, right? And if you're able to continuously innovate and be up to speed with what's happening in this market, then there will be, uh, there will be different options on the table for us to consider. Alessio Quaglini, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about uh, your business and your experience.